We talked tonight about uh, something quite basic, marriage as an institution, as an institution that is changing much in recent years around the Western world and uh, in this country as part of the Western world, and divorce and the consequences of divorce, not so much for those who got divorced, but rather for their children. All of that is uh, raised as a set of issues uh, by virtue of the uh, publication, late last year actually, of the new book by Elizabeth Marquardt titled Between Two Worlds, The Inner Lives of Children of Divorce. Elizabeth Marquardt is one of our guests. The other is an old friend and a frequent guest on this program, Alan Carlson, who has done 20 books on marriage and divorce and family and the history of family, etc., etc. One of the leading scholars in the world on matters of this sort. He is the president of the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society. Uh, Elizabeth uh, I had an email yesterday from a listener uh, because I, forecasting what was coming on the program, I said something about the, what we're now about to do, and I made some mention of the uh, common assertion that uh, every half of all American marriages end in divorce. Uh, a listener wrote me a quite intelligent letter which corrected me and said, that's a statistical error and you've got it wrong and you're perpetuating a common uh, delusion. Uh, it's true that in any given year, as, twice as many people marry as get divorced, but those divorces go back to marriages that were contracted earlier and that's not the way to uh, organize the data. Do you agree? Part of the difficulty in marriage and divorce statistics right now is that our government uh, is not collecting divorce statistics from the states as it once did. Uh, Mr. Carlson can speak to that more than I can. Uh, the projected divorce rate for first marriages now is around 42 to 43 percent, but scholars uh, have some disagreement about that. It is true, though, that uh, the message that half of all marriages end in the divorce nowadays is uh, not quite accurate. The New York Times did a good story on it, I think, late last year, um, and it's certainly a depressing message to share with our society and our young but people. But then the proper statement, Alan, would be four out of every ten American marriages now contracted will end in divorce. That's true. And what is also true is that uh, First marriages tend to actually have the best success rate. Subsequent marriages, say second or third marriages, uh, tend to be more unstable. And once you've got the habit. Once you sort of got the habit of, yeah. of picking up and uh, moving off uh, when things get rough, uh, it seems easier to do. The basic focus of Elizabeth Marquardt's book and of the research that she's done, both intensive interviewing with some 80 or 90 people, but also a survey involving... It was a national survey, telephone survey so of young adults, 1,500 young adults. Yeah. This is a nationally representative sample, um, half from divorced families and half from intact families. And that's just as your interviews were half with divorced children of divorced families and half whose families had remained intact. That's right. Thus, Between Two Worlds is subtitled, The Inner Lives of Children of Divorce. We should make clear instantly, you're not looking at the children of terrible divorces where the parents were at each other's throats and were fighting in court over everything and where there was a lot of there may have been violence in the home that's not your universe of discourse not so much uh, there's already a lot of work showing how bad a high conflict divorce uh, and a high conflict marriage can be for children one of the things that I wanted to do is myself someone I'm 35 years old uh, I grew up in a divorced family uh, my parents are wonderful people they certainly had what we will call a good divorce uh, and I was interested in taking on that's this a, idea a modern concept. It is. Uh, it was, the, the term was coined in the early 90s, uh, but the idea has been around for a little longer than that. Uh, 
but the idea that if your parents, uh, you know, conduct their divorce reasonably well, that you come out rel relatively unaffected by it was one I wanted to investigate. Uh, looking at my own experience and the experience of others in my generation, um, I had a sense that divorce shapes you as a person. Even if you end up relatively successful, you don't look like damaged goods. You certainly don't think of yourself that way. And that was one of the experiences I wanted to investigate. Well, let's hear first about your own experience. If Since you tr write about it in the book, you won't mind talking about it to some degree as well. Uh, your parents had a good divorce, and you've examined the consequences for you. What were the consequences? One of the things I wanted to do was to uh, think about what it's like to have a family structure in which your parents uh, live six hours apart from one another uh, mm -hmm. your entire life growing up. And when I was growing up, I was pretty matter-of-fact about my parents' divorce. Uh, How old were you when it happened? I was two when they split, and they each remarried uh, twice uh, in my childhood by the time I was 19. Um, so I had a lot of experiences of com people coming and going, step-parents and ex-step-parents, things like that. Uh, but uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, as a child, certainly, I would have been the first uh, person to leap to my parents' defense if anyone had challenged them. And, uh, you know, I used to impress people by kind of rattling off my complex family structure to them. Usually they would just sort of back down and go, wow, and that'd be the end of the discussion. It was really in my 20s, you know, when I was dating and thinking about my own possibility for marriage someday and looking at friends of mine who'd grown up in intact families, that I started to wonder how, you know, uh, growing up in a divided family structure, which is how I came to think of it, uh, shapes a person on the inside. Uh, at around that time, I was in divinity school at the University of Chicago, and I went looking for resources on the moral and spiritual impact of divorce on children and found that there were essentially were none. Our, our great resources on moral development and spiritual development in young people were either written before divorce was widespread, or they continue largely to ignore family structure and focus kind of on other areas of socialization. Well, what did you think, uh, just in your own introspective examination of your own life, were the consequences for your moral development? A lot of the questions that I asked on my national survey, uh, some of them came from the uh, in-person interviews I did first and mm -hmm. issues that came up, but a lot of them were drawn from my own experience. Uh, and it was quite uh, gratifying, actually, to be able to ask uh, these questions uh, in a nationally representative survey of this kind. So one of the questions I said, it was uh, agree-disagree statements. One was, uh, growing up, I felt like a different person with each of my parents. Uh, those from divorced families in my survey were over twice as likely to agree with that uh, compared to those from intact families. Those from divorced families, uh, two-thirds of them said that their parents seemed like polar opposites after the divorce, even though only a fifth said their parents had a lot of conflict. And a lot of these questions and statements that I offered to these young people were based on my own sense that uh, when your parents are married, uh, they have differences. Everybody has differences. But by being married, they're kind of announcing to the world that it's their job first to deal with those differences. When they get divorced, their differences don't go away. They just don't have to deal with them much anymore. anymore. But their child, who grows up traveling between them and looking to each of the parents uh, as the child's figuring out his or her own values and beliefs and, and ways of living, uh, the child is now the one having to make sense of the differences between their parents' different values and beliefs. And uh, so the rough edges between the parents' worlds are still rubbing together, but not between the parents anymore. They just rub together in the inner life of the child. In the inner life. But is it demonstrable that there are other life consequences. If you take uh, the sample of uh, children of, uh, of good divorces and children of parents who never divorced mm -hmm. and they're on into their adult lives, do you find more evidence of neuroticism, more recourse to psychotherapy, uh, more um, habituation of an addictive variety, uh, more, troubled, uh, uh, more troubled relationships with other members of uh, the opposite sex? or for that matter of the same sex what what is there 
evidence of pathology or at least of disruption and dysfunctionality, which is more visible in the one group than in the other. It's an excellent question. A lot of our studies on children of divorce up to this point, uh, Judith Wallerstein is one of the exceptions, but a lot of them have focused mainly on pathology. And sociologists and others have found that children of divorce in general are about two to three times more likely to have serious long-term damage, as some call it social and emotional damage, diagnosed with the kind of issues and other issues that you describe, addictions, depression, teen pregnancy, delinquency, and then a whole range Mm. of psychological problems. But are those children of good divorce or children of bad divorce? Some are, some are not. Uh, Some studies kind of make that distinction looking at the level of conflict the parents had. Some don't. I was interested in more the Uh, in a sense the softer issues uh, you might say pain rather than pathology and so uh, when I compared those from good divorces in my sample with those from bad divorces and compared them to those who grew up in unhappy marriages versus happy marriages those who grew up in so-called good divorces uh, were themselves much more likely to divorce later even compared Uh to those who grew up in unhappy marriages Uh, those from so-called good divorces compared to those from unhappy marriages were more likely to say that they were alone a lot as children that they had to protect their mothers emotionally that family life was stressful Uh, these are the kind of indicators that I was looking at. Alan Carlson, your first reflections on the matters we've been discussing. Though I should add, of course, that among the many people who've written enthusiastic reviews of Elizabeth's book, you are to be numbered. I, I did. I reviewed the book for National Review. And it's a wonderful book. I really do uh, urge your listeners to uh, to get a copy. It's uh, a very moving uh, personal story, but what makes it different is it's tied to this new and original uh, work of research, which uh, has never really been done before, and it makes for a fascinating story. The one thing, one of her uh, questions, I believe, or at least it came out in her interviews, was that I found quite moving was how her uh, her subjects dealt with the uh, the gospel story of the prodigal mm-hmm. son, mm-hmm. Um, where um, those who came from uh, intact families where no divorce had taken place. Uh, uh, got the story, uh, understood the message, and were moved by the message of the father receiving the uh, the son back after his wild fling. But for the children of divorce, um, they were deeply troubled and confused by this story. And, in fact, were more f- conscious, of, I think is the phrase you use, more conscious of the prodigal parents. Mm-hmm. Um, they never had enough stability to even run away from it, which uh, was sort of... Uh, something uh, which which only people coming from intact families actually have that opportunity that they can actually rebel in, in this in this case uh, in the case of, of of the good divorce rebellion is almost not an option and in, in an odd way uh, that creates a, an even deeper sense of, of, of malaise and uh, depression do the children of good divorce remain equally loyal to both of the divorced parents or do they tend to get more committed to one rather than the other it varies. I mean, they often feel protective of one or both of their parents. Uh, often, especially if they perceive a, a parent as being more vulnerable, perhaps that parent uh, never remarried or uh, just was the one who was abandoned or left uh, in the marriage in the first place. Uh, a lot of people have identified kind of the feeling that children of divorce have divided loyalties. You know, they don't know. They have... Uh, two different families and they feel like to sort of speak up and be part of one uh, can get them in trouble in the other one. I, I kind of have an observation that I think goes a little deeper than that is that uh, children of divorce become in a sense different selves they become divided selves because we become who we are in relationship our our moral selves are grounded in relationship children of divorce grow up in two different worlds filled with people who often may not even know each other may never have even met each other and uh, within those two different worlds they become in a sense a different person so it's not so much that they feel a divided loyalty in each place but it's this that 
when their p- two parents are together, for instance, they don't even know who to be. You know, so a lot of the good divorce uh, advice is to get together at your child's soccer games and you know school recitals and things like that afterwards. It's not necessarily bad advice, but when you talk to the grown children about what that was like, they said it was so stressful. Not because I thought my parents would fight. Generally, they didn't fight in public like that. But it was, you know, should I be my dad's self or my mom's self when they're both in the same room together? I didn't know. It is surely a burden, yet obviously neither of you would want to argue that all marriages must hold together no matter what forever till, quote, death do them part. <laughs> well, the Catholic Church still sort of teaches that. as, uh, <laughs> But it's got uh, a loophole. <laughs> well, they have a... Which uh, has grown larger and larger <laughs> over the years. I know yeah, that's, that's always been the virtue of, of Catholicism. Yeah. There are strong rules, but also always ways to get out. <laughs> uh, but... I, I no, I don't argue for eliminating divorce, um, but I do think we need to think very seriously whether the the system we have now, essentially based on no fault divorce, uh, a revolutionary system in, introduced in America with relatively little debate in the late '60s and 1970s, whether we should stick with that. You have argued in the past, indeed, you've even said so on this program, and in your writing, that no fault simply generated a tremendous rush towards divorce, which has continued, that it raised divorce rates by how much? Well, <clears throat> it's, a, it's complicated a little bit. The divorce rate was going up in the 60s, mm-hmm. starting to go up before no fault came along. But there's independent research that does show that once the no fault uh, states introduced that new provision, it independently drove up the divorce rate higher than it would have been otherwise. How much higher? Uh, I think in some cases, like about n- another 20 to to 40 percent something like that it but again the other things were going on in the 60s which were also um much more conducive to uh, to encouraging divorce let us consider all the factors which are pushing americans or have over recent years pushed them more and more towards taking divorce as a, a serious option after we pause for some other consumerist options uh and then return to elizabeth marquart and ellen carlson And we return (coughs) to Alan Carlson, president of the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society that is based in Rockford, Illinois, and to Elizabeth Marquardt, who is uh, author of the book that we're featuring tonight, Between Two Worlds, The Inner Lives of Children of Divorce, and is as well an affiliate scholar at an organization called the Institute for American Values. What is that? The Institute for American Values is a think tank based in New York City. I work from home. I live in Highland Park. Uh, We've been around for a while, and our mission is to contribute intellectually to the renewal of marriage, family, and civil society in the U.S. We bring together scholars from across the spectrum, the left and the right, to investigate a lot of these problems related to marriage and divorce. Now, back to the question that we had come upon just before we stopped for those commercials. To what degree has... um, I'll pose a number of related questions. To what degree, then... Uh, if we've got numbers uh, that cover this at all, has divorce increased? And what are all the different reasons or uh, or causal factors that feed into the increase in divorce? But one should also add to that, I would say, Alan and Elizabeth, the question of to what degree have we begun to abandon marriage so that there are lots of people, who, not who've been married and then got divorced, but increasing numbers of people who never get married. Well, let's start with the uh, divorce statistics. Um, divorce was slowly climbing in the early 20th century, but at a very low level. On the other hand, you still had the you had the divorce mill out in Nevada that started in the 1890s, um, but still uh, slow. After World War II, there was quite a big jump during and after World War II, the disruption of the war. 
But then from 1946 until about 1960, the divorce rate was falling, uh, despite the fact that America was going through this marriage boom, which generated the baby boom. But the divorce rate was going down into the early 1960s, uh, and then it started to reverse and creep up, and by the late 60s and through the 1970s, it, uh, it dramatically increased, uh, tripled, basically. Uh, the number of children affected by divorce climbed over a million a year, I think, I think 1.2, 1.3 million. And then in the 19, late 80s, early 90s, the it leveled off, and in actual fact, the last 10 years has seen sort of a modest decrease in, in the divorce rate, <laughs> but it's still at a very high level. You see, one of the factors, you mentioned this before, let's elaborate upon it now. Uh, I seek elaboration from both of you. One of the factors that, are, uh, that is conducive to increase in divorce is simply no-fault uh, divorce legislation. How so? Well, it's, uh, one, of the, one of the purposes of marriage law is to help couples get their relationship through the tough times. Um, if it's relatively difficult to get a divorce and you face a problem in your marriage, your first recourse isn't to go to a lawyer and start the divorce proceedings because it may take, there may be a waiting period of, of several years. You may have to prove fault. You may have to go through a whole series of cumbersome and difficult steps. So the incentive there is to solve the problem, the immediate problem. I uh, must read you a quotation from Robert Anderson. Perhaps you know him, I don't, but from a book titled Solitaire and Double Solitaire. In every marriage more than a week old, there are grounds for divorce. <laughs> the trick is to find and continue to find grounds for marriage. Precisely, and the law's purpose, in my view, should be to help couples through that. That's why no-fault divorce, which essentially, in its purest version, allows one couple to unilaterally say, hey, I'm out, the, the contract is over, um, uh, I'm done. The other person wants to save the marriage. I'm sorry. The law is on the side of the person wanting to uh, wanting wanting to file for the divorce. So now, when children are involved, it gets a little more gets more complicated. But uh, even with that said, the marriage the marriage law today sides with the person who uh, who chooses to uh, to leave. Beyond uh, marriage law, is there something else in our general culture and in the further? development of modern culture which tends to destabilize marriage the cultural end is what i'm particularly interested in i think our the change in our divorce laws uh in some ways preceded the cultural changes but also <clears throat> in a way followed them um in a sense uh <clears throat> as our cultural we as we began to focus more on the individual and and looking to marriage as a place where individuals are supposed to be happy and find happiness uh, routinely, we started to have a lot more expectations for marriage, and that's partly why the divorce rate began to climb. It became easier legally to get out of marriage, but we also um, started to ask ourselves not just you know women started to ask themselves not just is he a good provider and does he not hit me and you know is he a good father, but also am I fulfilled? Or, you know, do we have a good sex life? Uh, does he is he interested in me? As a, you know, do we have a good friendship and intimacy? Do I, catch, do I catch the suggestion in what you're saying that the new feminism somehow altered women's expectations concerning marriage in a way that led to greater dissatisfaction and thus to greater divorce? In a sense it did, and I say that with mixed feelings. I'm someone who was raised a feminist. If there was any religion I was raised in, it was feminism. Uh, I'm still very sympathetic in many ways. Uh, to many of the ideals of feminism, I uh, still consider myself part of the women's movement and think it brought much good, but I do think it also introduced uh, a great deal of uncertainty in relationships between men and women. 
and put a lot of pressure on marriages because people look to marriage to be, in a sense, their everything now. You know, we move around a lot. We're not near our sisters or our friends or our mothers that much. Yeah. When we're married, we look to our husbands and our wives to be uh, everything for us, and nobody can do that. One of the things um, I'm interested in on the cultural end, uh, the, the kind of change that I'd like to make is not so much legal change, although I respect uh, the efforts that people are making in that area, but I'd like to change hearts and minds on this issue. And I think that, uh, you know, my... Uh, way of doing that is to try to really unpack the experience of children of divorce to get beyond the happy talk in our culture and to show people what it's really like from the inside uh, over the long term for children when their parents break up and in that way to help some of these parents who are uh, maybe in troubled marriages that could be saved to rethink their decision to divorce. I would add yet another general culture change that I think has tended to destabilize marriage and to foster recourse to divorce. Uh, I have to put on my curmudgeonly cap or my old fuddy-duddy uh, style and simply name it as the hypersexualization mm. of our culture. When uh, all the talk about sex and all the entertainments focused on sex put great stress on not merely orgastic fulfillment but on quick changes of partners as if we're playing a game of deck chairs or something, uh, that tends to arouse in ordinary people who get married out of uh, love or the excitements that are classified as love in the courtship years and in the first uh, few months of marriage but it tends to get many of them restive asking quote in the great in the, the words of the great song by Peggy Lee is that all there is <laughs> uh, and from there on uh, things can go wrong including of course recourse to adulterous adventure I think uh, you put your finger on a very important point uh, the sexual revolution had two profound effects on, on marriage. Um, remember, prior to what we call the sexual revolution, marriage had a monopoly on publicly acceptable sexual behavior. Most other forms of sexual contact that were not a married heterosexual form were illegal or certainly culturally discouraged in a, in a, in a strong way. Um, that came to an end in the 60s. The first thing that, uh, that really broke off was uh, sex and marriage were separated. Or decoupled. Were essentially yeah. decoupled, that's right. And um, uh, the uh, expression of, 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 of sexual uh, activities no longer had to be within the, marriage, uh, within the marriage context. The second phase of this, which really probably hit about the same a little bit later was uh, the, the decoupling of procreation from marriage mm -hmm. um, uh, if one had a child out of wedlock before 1970 uh, the uh, the common practice was to put the child up for adoption uh, it was just uh, not acceptable um, in polite society to, to keep the child well that was already changing uh, among among African Americans where the number of children born out of wedlock was rising quite dramatically in the 50s and 60s uh, but that changed for the majority population in the 70s, too. Well, we've got that great finding. Uh, it's quoted again and again. If you go back to the Moynihan Report, which was done some 40 years ago, at that time, and Moynihan examined all those statistics, when he was an assistant to Nixon in the White House before he uh, ran for the Senate and became an eminent member of that body. And in the Moynihan Report, he uh, does um, assert that the data show that some 30% of black children are born out of wedlock and a much, much, much lower number for Caucasian children. It was about 4% at about that 4%, time. About 4%, whereas we now come to the point where some 75 to 80% of 
uh, African-American children are now born out of wedlock, to use the old-fashioned phrase, and some 30% or a bit more of white kids are born out of wedlock. So uh, the whole society seems to be going towards, uh, in a way, not so much the uh, divorce uh, sundering of marriage, but rather the abandonment of marriage as an institution. The reason I'm concerned about marriage uh, is that uh, the not only that studies show that children with their own married parents uh, on average do far better in so many areas of life but also uh, because children long for their mothers and fathers and if you your parents uh, are never married uh, especially if they're never married you're much much less likely to have a relationship uh, especially a good relationship uh, with your own father and if your parents get divorced that relationship with your father and with your mother can really be compromised you know children of divorce uh, the idea of the good divorce that children go back and forth and stay in relationship with both their parents and you know spend two nights here two nights there the point of being a child of divorce is that to be with one parent always means not being with the other you know in the midst of parental presence is always parental absence and that is hard for children but now comes the data or now come the data data being plural from another sector of the western world alan carlson has done a great deal of work uh, on and in scandinavia particularly in sweden uh, and I've learned from reading your books and from talking with you that nobody gets married in Sweden until maybe late in life when you kind of do it as a uh, as a kind of indulgence for your adult kids. Well, and uh, over there, the this result, which uh, which which you just described, was much more the consequence of deliberate political action. Really, starting in the 1930s, one wing of the Swedish socialist movement, uh, led in this case by Alva and Gunnar Myrdal, uh, consciously set out to socialize home life, is, is the way they would have described it, both transferring of con uh, essentially control and concern for children to the state, but also by de-emphasizing marriage as an institution, uh, in a sense, um, turning right you know in a traditional marriage the husband is dependent on the wife for certain things the wife is dependent on the husband the socialist division in their view was all adults would be equally dependent on the state thereby gaining gender equality um, now they, this idea was in retreat even in Sweden in the 40s and the 50s so uh, they had their own little marriage boom and baby boom it was called the era of the socialist housewife over there but that came to an end in the 60s and 70s when this older idea of uh, of in a sense socializing the family and doing it uh, in a much more gentle way than say the Bolsheviks tried to do in Russia but the same end result essentially stripping the family of all functions uh, making all citizens equally dependent on the government uh, for their dependency. But of course, the question, Alan, do man and woman, father and mother, still maintain the same residence and live together, though they are not officially married, whether uh, by uh, civil authority or by religious authority? Some do and some don't. Actually, the Swedes do probably a somewhat better job than oh, than over here than you see among uh, mother-only families over here. But that said, these are still very fragile relationships. The um, uh, uh, they they go in, they go out very easily. Uh, there are uh, again children 
<clears throat> the state has little concern for the, the stability of these relationships because, again, the, uh, the children are dealt with through other mechanisms, through the schools, through uh, mm -hmm. through various government en entities and agencies. The, the daycare centers are also places where the government deals with the children rather than mediating it through the parents. So it's in Sweden, one could very well speak of our friendly parent, the state. Yes, and it's a very friendly, it's a, it's a genteel, um, uh, kind of a pleasant form of socialist totalitarianism, but that's still what it is. Well, what kind of Swedes does that produce? What well, kinds it, of people are the kids <laughs> who come out of that sort of odd, uh, that odd variant of family life? Well, it's a country, I should say, I, that I, I love very much. I'm genetically 100% yeah. Swedish. All of my ancestors came from there, and I've visited there many times. Uh, Sweden has latent problems. It has an extremely high crime rate. Um, uh, this, the crime rate in Stockholm is higher than, say, New York City, uh, without the ethnic problems that, say, New York City would, that New York City has. Um, alcoholism is an extremely serious problem in, in Sweden. Uh, the um, beneath the surface of Sweden are these. Um, serious pathologies that uh, that seem to be related to again the end of the family is a meaningful institution part of which was the uh, the uh, sort of the deinstitutionalizing of marriage it's so interesting to remember that the beginning of a great assault upon the family indeed a raging rejection of the family as a kind of tyranny representative of the capitalist order uh, is issued not by Marx, but by his partner Engels. Uh, Eng what's, the, what's the title of that book by Engels? Uh, Family, Property, and the State, isn't that and what it is? And it goes back to the 1870s or... Yeah, 1880s, I think. 1880s, yeah. after Marx was dead, I think. Yes. But Engels... The Origin uh, of Family, Private Property, and the State. That's it, yeah. In which he really condemns the family as uh, an institution that perpetuates the power of private property and also is somehow wrong for low for for growing uh young people uh, they must be freed of the tyranny of the family and it was also it was based on some really bad anthropology that engels got a hold of yeah. and um basically he was arguing that uh this had to be toppled the system of uh, patriarchal uh monogamy had to be toppled so that uh human society could involve and return to its its pure place which was um, uh, basically sort of sort of free sex uh, children in uh, collective care and um, no marriage well if you follow the trend lines that you might very well extrapolate and and predict that marriage may be going out of fashion in this country and if so and there may be various signs of that uh, quite apart from the matters we've already discussed is marriage a dying institution in the united states of america and or in the western world generally will it be gone in another century is a question i raise looking forward to your response after this and we return to elizabeth marquardt and ellen carlson uh, the immediate occasion for this program is the publication a few months ago uh, of the uh, new book by elizabeth marquardt between two worlds the inner lives of children of divorce that is just published by crown um, and uh, the question i was raising really is what is the future of the institution of marriage i can't really imagine that it will disappear completely but it's been trivialized and reduced to a kind of a pointless ritual apparently in sweden and that has had consequences for um, the way in which kids are reared in sweden and that's true alan as well isn't it for uh, denmark 
About to an equal degree. Just about. That's right. And a little bit less so in Norway, but right. they're probably going in that direction. Right. Uh, are we going in some similar direction, Elizabeth? It's a great question. I mean, on the one hand, uh, I wouldn't sound the death knell for marriage so soon. Uh, our divorce rate has, it's still quite high, but it has stabilized. Uh, the vast majority of young people uh, on surveys say that when they grow up, one of their important goals in life is to be married. We see a lot of enthusiasm for marriage uh, and marriage advice. Uh, the gay marriage debate, in a sense, can be seen as, as a uh, another sign that uh, we're very enthusiastic about marriage, even if we have uh, intense disagreements about the future in which it should go. So on the one hand, uh, you know, Americans are still very pro-marriage in a sense. On a, in another sense, we see a proliferation of uh, ideas about marriage that I think are, are weakening it as an institution. Uh, we have a growing understanding of marriage as being mainly about the couple. It's supposed to fulfill the couple. Um, if it helps the children too, that's fine. But if the couple's not happy anymore, it's just as well to part or to do something different. And in not only in our un own country, but in uh, other countries in Europe uh, and, and around the world, um, we see not just uh, the advent of, of gay marriage or even civil unions, but different kinds of what you might call marriage light arrangements. In France, they have the PACs, which are sort of civil unions that um, both straights and gays can enter into, um, as well as common law marriages and what we might think of as traditional marriage. Uh, in some jurisdictions of the U.S., you know, we have uh, domestic partnerships or civil unions, which over time, uh, while I recognize some of the rights claims of adults who wish to enter into these unions, and I understand why some of them need legal and social protections, but this proliferation of sort of marriage light arrangements can also make it more confusing for all of us to know, well, who's married and who's not, and what is what obligations or responsibilities and expectations can people have from this institution when uh, an increasing number of institutions are kind of competing with it? Stanley Kurtz, who is trained as a sociologist, <laughs> indeed from the University of Chicago, uh, or anthropologist, I think anthropology, yeah. <clears throat> uh, writes a good deal um, in a very worried tone about gay marriage. Looking at Europe, he says that when they've gone to legalization of gay marriage, that has presaged and has somehow uh, led to the unfolding of a general abandonment of heterosexual marriage, a weakening of marriage as an institution. And therefore, he writes of commonly in the National Review, where he is a regular columnist, he writes many warning pieces about what gay marriage will do in this country if alone. He does. Uh, some dispute some of his claims about uh, the, the argument that he makes about Europe and the direction it's gone in relation to gay marriage. Uh, but I think he's a brilliant writer and has many good points to make about gay marriage. Uh, there are some places in which we agree. My concern about gay marriage, I understand the uh, desires of gays and lesbians to um, have their relationships publicly accepted and affirmed in this way. I certainly understand that, that many of these couples are raising children. Those children need legal and social protections. My concern is that uh, gay marriage requires us in law and culture to deny that children need and do best with uh, the mother and father who give them life um, and that this would impact not just the children of gays and lesbians but all children. Uh, it requires us to make our marriage law gender neutral and I'm not all that concerned about gender roles in marriage but it is the case that children arrive in the world uh, from two gendered creatures, a man and a woman who are their mother and father. Children when they do not grow up with those people uh, typically long for them and uh, we don't know much about the outcomes for gay and lesbian children of gay and lesbian couples yet but we do know that in every other alternative family form we've tried children mm -hmm. on average don't do as well compared to those uh, raised with their married parents. We will get some calls tonight quite likely from uh, a representative of a gay couple whether male or female saying that we are raising a kid or we're raising kids and they are doing wonderfully well and everyone uh, notes that they are just as normal as anybody else 
And uh, I hope that we do, and, and I'm glad that their children are doing well. I don't worry about gay marriage any more than I worry about single parenthood or divorce, for that mm-hmm. matter. And I'm the first to acknowledge, I spent most of my career so far studying uh, how the heterosexuals have messed up marriage. Uh, I'm the first to acknowledge that, you know, it's our fault. <laughs> I'm heterosexual. It's our fault first. Uh, but I am concerned that the uh, power and potency of the gay marriage mm-hmm. debate often silences the experiences of the children. And uh, we're not supposed to say, well, where is the child's mother or father? How, do the, how does the child feel about that when the child looks in the mirror and tries to understand, well, who am I? Are they allowed to, yeah. you know, follow that question? On these social commentators are these days rather inhibited by the expectation that if they don't tread very carefully in what they say... That you'll be called a bigot, and I don't like being called that anybody. The word homophobe will be thrown at them, and that ends all serious discourse, doesn't it? It does, and I think that uh, the the losers in that will be children who are not, you know, the the inner lives of children uh, will be silenced, and I think that as someone who grew up as a child of divorce in a culture that didn't want to hear about the downside of divorce, you know, I don't mean to sound lofty, but I think it's some incense my duty to speak up for these kids who can't speak up for themselves yet. What do you uh, find in uh, the sample that you've worked with, both the those you've interviewed closely and those in the broader sample who were surveyed by the usual survey methods? Uh, what do you find about how, in adult life, these children of divorce, of good divorce, in quotes, adapt? Mm-hmm. How do they do in their own lives? You know, many many of us who grew up in uh, what's called a good divorce or an amicable divorce uh, are relatively successful people. Uh, we don't think of ourselves as damaged goods, uh, certainly, and uh, most people don't think that we are. Uh, and yet... Uh, but are these the, uh, the ones who, uh, the children who, as adults, to show more marital instability than those who come from yes the children of so-called good divorces have a divorce rate of about 60 percent in my sample uh compared to the children whose parents stayed married uh it's lower than 40 percent uh, so their their divorce uh-huh. rate is over twice as high as those even those who grew up in unhappy marriages so long as their parents marriage was low conflict and what a lot of people don't know is that most uh divorces today end low conflict marriages um so those who grew up in uh good divorces i mean in a sense if you if you can manage coming through a divorce, you gain good skills uh, in the world. You learn to negotiate between two very different worlds and to wear different hats in different situations and to, uh, you know, to learn quickly and adapt and grow up fast. You know, it's, it's good skills for the work world in a sense, but you also lose an aspect of your childhood. And, uh, and frankly, some children, when given this big task of negotiating between these two worlds, uh, can't rise to it as well as others, and they're the ones who really suffer. Well, those who do rise to it, by what methods do they rise? What are the working mechanisms or working styles that handle these problems uh, in the adult lives of children of divorce? The, in my book, I call them little adults. You know, they they grow up fast. They learn. Uh, they become very protective of their parents. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, they don't go to their parents as often for comfort. It was quite striking in our nationally representative sam- survey. Uh, we asked an open-ended question, when you were a child and you needed comfort, what did you do? Those from intact families, two-thirds of them said some version of their parents. I went to my mom, I went to my dad, I went to my parents. Mm-hmm. Only one-third of those from divorced families said I went to my mom or I went to my Where dad, I went to my parents. Instead? They were more likely to name peers, either siblings or friends, mm-hmm. or to say that they dealt with it alone. And so over and over you get this portrait of these children who are very much alone, even in the best divorces. Uh, those from uh, the children of divorce were three times more likely to agree I was alone a lot as a child and seven times more likely to strongly agree with that. Not only because they were more often literally alone, their divorced parents were working or dating or living in another household, but also because I discovered, you know, being the only link between your parents in different worlds is a very lonely place to be. You know, one word that has not yet entered into our conversation, I think, um, though it is in fact in the title of the organization of which Alan Carlson is the president, 
is religion. What does religion have to do with all of this? Well, religion in the um, in the Western experience has had a lot to do with it. Uh, certainly, the if you look at the Christian the Christian understanding of marriage, uh, procreation, uh, fidelity, and um, permanence were the three. Uh, goods of marriage uh, declared by St. Augustine uh, 1,500 years ago, 1,600 years ago. Um, and that has been the Western tradition until very recently. Um, even the anthropological record, even the paleoanthropological record, going back thousands and tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, tends to pretty much tell the same story. Long-term pair bonds focused on producing and rearing children. That's what marriage has been in the human experience. Could then the decline of religion in the West, it has flourished in some sectors, but overall the West has grown more and more secularized over the last century and a half. Could that have something to do with the increase in divorce? I think absolutely. I'm sure, I, I'm sure it does. Um, one, as one, The more one looks and studies uh, religious faith and behavior, that is not so much nice thoughts, but as it influences your behavior, religion has a strong uh, direct effect on the strength of family life. Um, it was one of the reasons G.K. Chesterton, in a book he wrote about 80 years ago, an Englishman, he did, he did a book called The Superstition <coughs> of Divorce. And uh, he, he said, ultimately, uh, marriage would survive, the family would survive, because it's the one institution that renews itself naturally. With that, we're about to pause for some commercials and a newscast, and then we hope to go directly to the phones. We're opening the lines right now for any question you want to raise, any report you want to share. 591-7200 is the number, whether you are or are not a child of divorce or a parent who is contemplating divorce or has been through divorce. Divorce and the welfare of children is what we're discussing tonight. 591-7200. The lines are open. We await your calls. We shall return directly after this. Time for a quick reintroduction of our guests, and then we will go directly to the phones and as well to the email. If you're listening to us on the Internet at some great distance and would rather email us, that's uh, quite easy. Just go to and just address us at extension 720 as one word at tribune t-r-i-b-u-n-e dot com or for phones 591-7200 if you're calling long distance the prefix is 312 and our guests are Elizabeth Marquardt and Alan Carlson Elizabeth Marquardt is an affiliate scholar at the Institute for American Values and she is the author of the recently published book Between Two Worlds the Inner Lives of Children of Divorce. That was published toward the end of last year by Crown Books. Alan Carlson is the president of the Howard Society for Family, Religion, and Society. Among his many books, some recent titles are The American Way, Family and Community in the Shaping of American Identity. A forthcoming book is titled Conjugal America on the Public Purposes of Marriage. 5917200 and... You are the first caller. Good evening. Good evening, Milt. Yes, sir. Uh, I'd like to uh, get your guest comment on a contention of mine. I believe that the research is very valid and very accurate. And furthermore, I'd like to contend that the research is not only accurate, but that their findings are obvious to anyone who bothers to look around and pay attention. Therefore, I'd like their comment on my contention that the problem is not so much that what their findings are are not well known to the general public, but the people just are not willing to give up their own comforts, their own time, their own pleasures for the benefit of their children. Well, I uh, 
I think what you're referring to is the fact that for the first time probably in human history, the last three or four decades have produced overwhelming evidence, overwhelming, irrefutable evidence that children do best when they grow up with their two biological parents in a stable uh, married couple family. That is incontrovertible. That's, uh, and it's universal. It's, we now know that as an absolute, really yeah. for the first time. But it seems to make no difference, <laughs> or makes very little difference exactly. in, in terms of setting up marriage law, in terms of, of, of shaping divorce law. And I think you're right. It's because uh, it, uh, it's too hard for, for our modern sensibilities. I think in a way, too, we, we don't know how to do marriage very well anymore. And uh, I don't think it's so much that divorced people are selfish. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the positions that many of them find themselves in. But when they hit hard roads in a, hard times in a marriage, and I'm not talking about clearly awful periods of abuse or violence where you definitely have to get out of a marriage. But I'm talking about sort of the normal hard times that we all face when we're married. Uh, they don't know what to do, and they think that maybe divorce is the best solution. Maybe they even have a responsibility to, to divorce for the sake of their kids. And that's where a lot of uh, good people now are working and trying to kind of get the message out about marriage education, marriage therapy, that uh, marriage goes through cycles just like life does. And when you're in a bad time, if it's not dangerous, you're just in a bad time, uh, the best thing for your kids and probably for you too is to stick it out. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank you. Interesting contribution. And we go to the next. Good evening. You are on the air. Well, it's a great show as usual. I uh, think that the thesis of the book is that it is a surprise that an amicable divorce or a good divorce uh, results in trauma to the children. On the other hand, I think that a seemingly okay situation for the children, which all of a sudden results in a split for the parents, is probably more traumatic than if the children are viewing conflict which is apparent to them. Yes. Yes, uh, uh, you're, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, that, uh, I, that was just my observation regarding the uh, uh, viewpoint of the children. Yes, other, other research has found, uh, and mine confirms and adds to this picture, that you know, when a high-conflict marriage ends, uh, the children on average do better when that marriage ends. Not that life gets easy for them by any means, but it gets better. When a low-conflict marriage ends, and about two-thirds of divorces today are ending low-conflict marriages, the children are overwhelmed and in general do worse because they really, you know, they don't know what hit them. They weren't aware of serious problems to begin with, and then one day their world just falls apart. So how do they, how do they trust anything after that? But if the shouting and screaming and banging end, that's probably... Better for the kids. It is. The question is whether the, the divorce effectively ends the shouting and screaming. Unfortunately, parents who aren't very good at marriage often aren't very good at divorce either. My second point regarding that uh, distrust of marriage from uh, the standpoint of the children, uh, especially if they're caught unaware, relates to the no-fault proposition. I think that it essentially is an abdication of the responsibility of the legal uh, process to essentially throw up their hands and say, well, everything's divided 50-50. Uh, I think there are some uh, motivations to more quickly dissolve a marriage, but I think even more importantly, there are uh, offerings of financial reward for irresponsible behavior, mm. uh, whether that's uh, sexual behavior or substance abuse or uh, uh, that kind of thing. And I think uh, the implications of that within the marriage for uh, the financial devastation causing uh, spouse abuse and secondarily, the next generation of children distrusting the institution of marriage is uh, a large impact. One of, the, one of the purposes of marriage, particularly of civil marriage, 
uh, has long been recognized uh, that the state is standing in as a, in a sense, a protector of the interests of the potential children or the children in the marriage. And um, one of the reasons that no-fault divorce has been so, such, a, uh, such a damaging um, uh, factor is that it, in a sense, is the state is abdicating its responsibility for the marriage and for the children within the marriage. Therefore, I, again, I think the no-fault revolution, which swept through America almost unopposed, uh, was a very, uh, I think, a very, a, a very bad step for our country, and I think it's part of the cause of the problem that uh, that children uh, of divorce now face. Sir, we thank you for the call. I fear we must move rather quickly now, but uh, that's a valuable contribution, and we do appreciate it. And we'll go directly to this caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, a uh, question. Um, when you, it seems that, uh, you know, it's, it's clear that, that the, the prevalence of divorce is a problem. I wonder if part of that solution may be in actually making uh, getting married any more difficult than it is, rather than uh, making divorce harder once uh, a marriage goes, uh, goes bad. It's, it's an interesting proposition, and it's one that people offer sometimes. The problem is that uh, people keep having sex, and babies often result, uh, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. And so, in a sense, if you discourage marriage, you're just going to be contributing to the unmarried childbirth uh, problem. And so one of the things I think we need to do is not so much make marriage harder, although we could do uh, a little bit of that, but to just uh, do a better job of educating our young people about what marriage is and how to have a good marriage so that when they fall in love with somebody and are doing the things that can make a baby, they also know how to be married if they want to make that choice. Our thanks to the caller. Let me read you a rather uh, troubling uh, email, uh, though I think it reflects a rather common pattern in the divorce process. Um, raising children in, quote, bad divorces is the way this fellow heads his email. I do so appreciate your doing this show. I'm currently going through a divorce with a woman who has done her best to exclude me from my son's life. I have a three-year-old boy. We have a great relationship, but he is clearly torn apart by this turmoil. I know the goal should be to have two parents cooperating in raising their child, and I am trying. But she wants to use my son as another means to attack me. My question is, how does a father deal with this situation? How can you protect your child in this circumstance and help him achieve the emotional security that he needs? As an aside, I think a lot of divorced fathers have to deal with uncooperative mothers, so I would really appreciate any advice you could offer in this circumstance. We must, of course, keep in mind that this is his version of what's happening, and if we were getting an email from his wife, we would get a, a rather different picture. But at the same time, Alan and Elizabeth, it is true that in a typical divorce, the court tends to favor the mother with... Uh, uh, I'm asking rather than asserting. We, we have swung in that direction, although we're swinging back again from it. A lot of fathers' groups, especially these fathers' rights groups, have uh, become more vocal in some states, and, and uh, a lot of the joint physical custody uh, sort of move towards the idea that children do best when they get a roughly equal amount of time with both parents stems a lot from this idea that parents have equal rights to time to their children, not so much real data showing that it's best for children to grow up in a, in a revolving door. That said, I'm extremely sympathetic uh, to parents uh, like this, this man I'm, you know, we're hearing from, this father we're hearing from right now, and the situation they find themselves in. Uh, there, there's a lot you can do to help reduce the uh, stress on your child on my website, betweentwoworlds.org 
has a link called For Your Marriage, between two worlds.org, and I link to uh, a couple of the really good national organizations where you can find uh, good resources, uh, education and therapy resources, and, and, and they're used to dealing with parents who, uh, you know, are the more motivated spouse uh, or ex-spouse in the situation, and there's a lot of good stuff out there, and I really encourage you uh, and, and wish you well. There uh, is an idea that's being floated, again, by by some, actually, fathers' rights groups uh, who have, have focused on this, but it's an intriguing idea. Um, it is that in uh, when children are involved in a, in, a, in, a, in a potential divorce situation, is that in the absence of abuse um, being a factor, that the court, in terms of awarding custody, would favor, would at least start out with a favor uh, towards the parent wanting to save the marriage. Um, in a sense, it would um, sort of undo the no-fault divorce revolution sort of indirectly, uh, when children were involved at least, by giving the, at least the preference would be toward the parent trying to save the marriage. I, I, it's an intriguing idea. In some ways, it would profoundly uh, um, uh, change the current situation, I, I think, in many ways for the better, but uh, uh, there might be some negatives too. Anyway, I just throw that as another possible option. Again, I don't think public policy is helpless in these circumstances. Uh, we're going to pause in just a minute for the usual reasons, but I should say we've got one or two lines available. If you try to reach us and hit the busy signal, uh, the, the proper strategy, of course, as I always say, is to call again, especially after we say goodnight to a prior caller. I would like to add that it would be quite instructive and useful for us, I think, if some people who are children of, quote, good divorces, uh, adult children, of good divorces uh, were to call and share with us their own reflections on how their lives have worked out and what the course of their lives uh, has to do with uh, the history of their parents' divorce. So don't hesitate. You've got the cloak of anonymity, of course. We don't <laughs> seek your name. Uh, 5917200 is the number. And if you want to join us, move quickly and you may well get through on the first try. If not, do please try again. Also, the email is available for any and all, any place in the world. If you want to join us by email, the uh, address, extension 720 at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. And we return directly after these words. Back to the phones in just an instant. <coughs> but I turn to Elizabeth Marquardt, author of Between Two Worlds, The Inner Lives of Children of Divorce, and Alan Carlson, president of the Howard Center, for Family, Religion, and Society, and ask you to interpret this rather um, uh, insistent uh, and rather uh, uh, dysphoric email that I have in front of me. It says, Milt, this was, I'm sorry to say, the emptiest show I can remember you ever presenting. Your guests had nothing to say except to spout their own prejudices. Over the years, I've come to trust you and to trust your show. You lost much ground tonight. Where was the opposing viewpoint? I hope your listeners contribute something. However, if they do, I'm afraid I won't be around to hear it, as I am long gone. <laughs> now, what would be the opposing viewpoint? Uh, the one arguing that divorce is good, or I suppose the only possible argument that, is, that we could have is whether uh, good divorce, in quotes, has certain deleterious effects upon kids. I, I, there... I often confront opposing viewpoints. Uh, I'm familiar with it. I, I'm not sure what his was, so well, I don't, maybe I don't the opposing want to speak for him, is but marriage. I, I wish he had shared a little bit more of his concern. Yeah, I do too. Concern. Maybe the opposing viewpoint is marriage is for the birds. 
Well, that's uh, that's one view among some elite opinion makers these days. Is that America's? I mean, uh, yeah, Mar America's marriage culture has come to an end, and good riddance. Who says that? Oh, uh, you'll you'll find it among certain uh, feminists of the more uh, uh, pure and or extreme version uh, that. It, uh, marriage is inevitably uh, patriarchal, um, and which feminist was was it who said all marriage is rape? Andrea Dworkin, or yeah, Andrea Dworkin, yeah. Catherine yes. McKenna. I know I should know. <laughs> yeah. I'm. Yeah. My apologies to Catherine McKenna if she's listening. I think she works around here somewhere. She's over in Ann Arbor. <laughs> okay. Well, as you hear uh, that extreme version a little less so, but there but there are those who want to deinstitutionalize marriage. Uh, Martha mm. Feynman, for example, just says it's time to get rid of this old institution. It's served its purpose in a, in a modern society uh, premised on equality and liberty and uh, democracy. Um, marriage uh, is just, it's, it's, had its, it's had its time. Uh, don't worry about divorce. Uh, that's why we have daycare centers and, mm -hmm. uh, and counselors and, uh, and the state. They'll, they'll, yeah. pick all, they'll pick it up. Now, let me read you another email, um, which uh, we can do a little bit more with. Uh, does your guest cite David Royko's Paren, Mike's psychologist's son, uh, David Royko's research on children of divorce. One of his findings was that the age of children did not immunize them from the trauma of divorce, even when the children were past the age of 21. Royko's work is uh, one of the important contributions in this field. Uh, I, I agree. The age of divorce... Uh, just shapes the experience, but uh, sometimes people ask me when I'm out speaking, you know, well, if you have to divorce, what's the best time for your child to have your divorce? And, and the answer is that there isn't one. Uh, the, the younger you are when your parents divorce, the more post-divorce instability you're likely to be exposed to because the remarriage divorce rate is higher than the first marriage divorce rate. Uh, the older you are, divorced, uh, you are when your parents divorce, the more you have to lose, in a sense. I should add, tell you that there's an addition uh, in the same email. The same emailer offers the following joke. The judge looks down at the couple in their 90s and asks why, after 60 years of marriage, they were now seeking a divorce. Well, Your Honor, we had to wait until the children were all dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Makes your point. We go back to the phones, 591-7200, and you are on the air. Good evening. Yes, good evening. This is a great show, and I really enjoy your show. Thank you, ma'am. Um, I am the... Adult child of what I would call a good divorce. My parents divorced when I was just about three years old, so I have very um, li limited recollection of what their life was like married. My husband, on the other hand, is the son of a rather unhappy and tumultuous almost 50-year-long marriage by two people who probably should have been divorced many, many years ago. So my comment is really that I think the specifics uh, of one's own situation uh, really can play a role in what I would call one's own quest for intimate, healthy adult relationships. My husband and I have each worked very hard in our um, own emotional development and in our own relationship to overcome the bad parts of uh, divorce and unhealthy marriage, mm. but also I am grateful to my parents because their divorce was good. They were uh, good about not triangulating and uh, remained on good terms and remain on good terms to this day. And I think that's been a very productive and healthy uh, initiator of my own adult relationships. So and and did, they both, did they both remarry as well? My father remarried unsuccessfully. Um, my mother has never remarried. But what I appreciate most about their relationships, and I would I guess, appreciate your panelists' comments on this, 
is that uh, the aftermath of their divorce was really one in which they didn't, they never said a bad word about one another. They each encouraged me to have healthy and productive relationships with the other. And I think it's the smartest decision they ever made and the healthiest decision for me. Thank you. Yes. I'm really glad to hear that, uh, both for your sake, and it's great to have that contribution on this program as well. Um, definitely parents who are staying married for the sake of the kids and who are doing absolutely nothing to improve and strengthen their marriage are doing their kids no favors and uh, there's a lot of help that people can reach out and get nowadays if they're in uh, the kind of marriage you describe. I also understand that you know findings such as you know high conflict marriages are bad for kids but low conflict marriages are better than divorce that only provides so much insight to actual parents. I mean, they have to figure out what kind of marriage theirs is and things like addictions or serial infidelity. You know, is that high conflict or low conflict? It can be hard to say. But it's at least a starting point. I'm just trying to reach, the people I'm especially trying to reach are the people, you know, what, what I say is this. If you're married to someone who you know is a good person and a good parent and you're just not sure if you're in love anymore or you feel like you're growing apart, there are so many good reasons to reach out and get help and keep your marriage together for your kids. And I realize, though, that there's a lot of gray here. And ma'am, with that, we thank you for the call. Thank you. And on to another. On 5917200, good evening, you're on the air. Good evening, Mel. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, I just have two quick comments, and I'll listen to your answers from all your guests and yourself. Um, number one, I think that the main problem with children with divorces is that the one side or another uses the child against the other. They pit them against them. And that really messes with their minds, especially, you know, during the divorce. You know, they go to the father's house. They come back to their mother. The mother wants to know what's going on over there and vice versa. And it, they, they don't know what side to pick. And it really messes with them. And they, they want to love both of them. And they're listening to their mother saying, you know, your dad's bad. Or they're going over to their dad's house and they're saying your mother's bad and vice versa. And that's really messing with them. And they shouldn't be used that way. Whatever happened between the couple happened between the two of them, and it had nothing to do with the children. And number two, as far as gays raising children, I have friends that are both gay and lesbian. And I don't think their sexual preference has anything to do with raising children as much as children need love and guidance. That's all they need. And regardless of who they decide to go to bed with, has nothing to do with raising children. Well, apparently Elizabeth disagrees with you to some degree. Uh, does your disagreement It's not uh, so much that I disagree. Upon... It's I like mean, I'd like to put the question on the table. I, I, I would like... Just, I mean, you're constantly hearing the news about heterosexuals abusing children, living in squalor, you know, living in... You, you hear children living in households that are unfit for an animal, let alone a child. And I don't think the gay community right, let's, is let's given get, a chance... Let's get some response here, please. Sure. I uh, think the children of gays and lesbians uh, generally without question love their parents just like uh, all children do and uh, and certainly gay and lesbian children should not have their uh, parents should not have their children taken away from them or anything like that. Um, I would just like to put the question on the table of how what is the inner lives of these children like as they grow up and as they seek to understand who they are when their mother and father are not in their lives. And a response from Alan Carlson. Um, the 
social acceptance of, of, uh, of gay parenting, even to the point of gay adoption, is, is a new and novel thing. It's really never been tried in human history before. Until not the last in a visible few years. way. Not in a visible way, yeah. But we, it hasn't been tried because of society. No, well, no, I think, uh, let's look at it a different way. Perhaps it's not just raw prejudice. Perhaps it has been tried, like as Elizabeth said, in a hidden way. We've discovered over time, over the centuries, over, over the millennia as a species, it doesn't work very well. Uh, we're putting children are being used as, 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 as experiments here. And I, I think that is, uh, there's a high degree of risk here. We do know this. Risk of what? Well, we do know this, for example, that uh, in Elizabeth's books um, notes this at one point, too, that uh, step-parent uh, situations uh, actually carry statistically a much higher risk, for example, of, 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 of child abuse. Now, this is not to say there aren't good step-parents. I admire step-parents that, uh, that succeed. It's a tough job to do. With that said, it's statistically uh, a much more dangerous place for a child to be uh, in a step-parent situation. Well, and it's, so that, that suggests that something similar may be the result that we're going to get uh, from uh, from uh, from uh, from the gay parenting experiment with that we'll um, have to pause uh, though I think that's a continuing issue which uh, could well receive yet further elaboration and further discussion but we pause for a quick round of commercials then right back to your calls and at the moment I see uh, two lines available if you were trying to reach us all night and not getting through make another quick try and you may very well Get through on 591-7200. And for email, the address remains, extension 720 at tribune.com. And back to the phones in an instant, but first a simple query via email. I'm wondering if you and your guests think that the high divorce rate among celebrities affects the American public, thus making it more acceptable to jump into marriage and then to get a divorce. I'm really interested in these kinds of cultural indicators, cultural trends. I mean, I don't think any of us is so simple that because Jennifer Aniston gets divorced, we do it too. But you know, uh, Jan Jennifer Aniston got divorced. Yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> uh, the uh, you know, I read People magazine just because I'm interested in how these kinds of stories shape popular attitudes and how they reflect popular attitudes. So I think it's part of the picture. Um. I think what we see less and less of is a celebration of of lasting marriages among mm. celebrities. I that that used to counterbalance some of this. Uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart was married for 50-some years to so-and-so. And that you see far less of. Um, although, occasionally, um, occasionally even People magazine reports on a happily married couple. So. <laughs> Tried out somebody from Des Moines or something. <laughs> well, don't you think that at, in some of the higher reaches of the society, uh, they've entered into a subculture which might be called a post-marital culture? Well, let's let's look even at the political level. You know, uh, prior to Ronald Reagan, it was just sort of axiomatic that um, uh, a person who'd been divorced could not be elected president. Uh -huh. There were there were plenty of uh, worthy candidates who came along, but who were just just were deemed unelectable. Um, Ronald Reagan changed that oddly enough. I mean, I'm, I like Ronald Reagan, so. Um, uh, he, he was a he was a wonderful president. Um, the first divorce but, candidate I remember at the presidential level was Adlai Stevenson. Is that right? I think that's right. I think that's right. And he didn't get elected. That's right. Twice. <laughs> so it's uh, the culture has changed. I would say it's much more accepting of divorce. Um, and again, that even that in turn feeds into. Uh, um, making it more acceptable and actually makes it easier for someone to say, I think I'm going to get a divorce. Of course, it isn't just divorce among the celebrities, particularly the Hollywood set 
and, and showbiz types. It's also uh, child, uh, childbirth and child rearing without ever entering marriage. What I'm particularly interested in is the numbers of celebrities, gorgeous women, of course, who are uh, publicly saying that uh, they want to have a baby and they might use a sperm donor. Pamela yes. Anderson, Halle Berry, a couple mm. others. I don't know if they're always real serious when they say it, but even the, that this is something that we joke about or it's kind of a possibility out there, I think indicates the low regard of which we hold fathers. So, if you take that as a cultural indicator, not as a causal factor, then clearly it does. I think it's part of the mix. Absolutely. If, if within elite circles, that's the way of life, that tells you that the whole society is tilting. Yeah, I think so, and absolutely no question that celebrity culture uh, drives uh, drives the behavior, helps Has to drive and well. influences the behaviors sure. of of, uh, of the rest of us. Five nine one seven two double zero. As we go back to the phones, you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening, Mel. Um, I'm calling, actually. Um, it's been a some time now, but it's caller before last called in as the adult um, child now of a divorced parent mm -hmm. who, who did a fairly amiable job of making it through. I'm the parent of such a child. Um, and like that young woman or, who called, my daughter uh, was three when her father and I ceased living together and four when we divorced. She now is 28 and married. And so her recollectable, you know, recollectable um, life is one where she has not had an intact family. Um, gratefully, her father was quite involved, very responsible financially, available emotionally um, and socially and educationally to her. Um, but we have talked through the years, and she's been very candid about despite all of what has worked just what the payment she has made has, has been um so i just wanted to hear from your expert well tell us first what what does she say about uh, well, what it cost her she says um it, I, I was very struck by your female um uh, guest's remark about when you are with one parent you are then absent always from the other and then as children grow and mature and live their own lives now when they visit they not only are absent from one parent or the other they now have that circle of life where they have to visit all the parents and all the parents relatives um, they're in great demand by all people when they're available um, and there is still that even though it's it's uh, socially acceptable uh, looking to the outsider we just went through the wedding a year ago and um, it is a strain. It brings up in the family dynamic and all the members who are part of it, even at the extended level, um, the failures, some of those same feelings come to the surface. Um, and, and she remembers those too. Um, so despite her ability to get along with both of us, to respect us, to love us, to be part of our lives and she part of ours willingly, uh, both of us have remarried. Neither of us had other children, um, and um, so I know in a lot of ways that was to her advantage. Um, but How do you think it has uh, affected or had any influence upon her um, marriage, her choice of mate and the continuing quality of her marriage? Well, her choice of mate, um, we had long discussion about it with someone she met when she was young and then reconnected with later. Um, they're both very committed to family, very committed to marriage. Um, but she's not one to stay married at any cost. But 
my words to her have always been that love is a commitment. It's a decision. It's not a feeling. That you have to be, both of you, you know, on board, connected. And if one of you wants to jump ship, which was the case in, in my first marriage, um, sometimes there's very little you can do. Mm-hmm. So, um, but anyway, I just, I would really like sort of, you know, that ongoing view as the family. Now, my husband's also divorced and has now um, married children and grandchildren. And so, you know, all the parents, step-parents, <laughs> extended family um, are connected during those familial times. And from a sociological and psychological point of view, I'd like a little weigh-in from your, your group there. Yes, by all means, Elizabeth. I'd just like to commend you, first of all. I know I'm a mother now myself, and uh, my children are very little at the moment. Uh, but I, I, I can only imagine how much some of those conversations have hurt, and uh, you, it's very courageous to be willing to hear what your daughter says about that. And uh, I, 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 that can only be uh, good for her and for you as well, and as part of what I'm sure is keeping your relationship strong. Uh, some of what I write about in the book is not only that divorce uh, puts a big burden on children, but that it can be such a lonely burden because we haven't named it very well. We don't talk about it. Uh, a lot of parents, unlike yourself, kind of want to be in denial about it, and that can make children feel incredibly isolated and lonely. And so one of my messages to parents who are already divorced uh, through you know, for whatever reason, uh, is uh, to learn about their child's experience that can only bring them closer together. Actually, I want to bring up a, just uh, your comments brought to mind something we haven't discussed yet tonight, but uh, uh, it's this growing attention to the, to the stages in a marriage. Uh, in fact, the transition and, in fact, even the kinds of love that, uh, that a married couple show to each other, uh, that's starting to finally get some attention. Um, the old movie, The Seven Year Itch, actually was fairly accurate. The, uh, a marriage seems most vulnerable, vulnerable sometime between six and eight years out. And this seems to be in part due to uh, a need for a transition in the relationship from what I call that initial infatuation, that romantic love, to a kind of love that, uh, that is, that's there for the long haul. There's even some uh, new evidence that uh, this is mediated not just uh, emotionally, but that the emotions have a, uh, uh, have a biochemical relationship, too. Um, we're just starting to kind of understand that. But this, again, I think underscores some of the things um, um, Elizabeth has said about the need to help prepare young people and young married couples for understanding what's ahead of them in the near future and helping them past that uh, that transition point. They can turn to the views of uh, some people from earlier periods who pronounced upon these matters with simple wisdom. For example, Benjamin Disraeli, of all people, <laughs> says, it destroys one's nerves to be amiable every day to the same human being. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> and even, even older. Just last night I had occasion to mention Pliny the Elder uh, <laughs> in, in, uh, the Rome, in Roman antiquity. And here is his nephew, Pliny the Younger, uh, Gaius Plinius Cecilius Secundus, who says, an object in possession seldom retains the same charm that it had in pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> These are timeless problems we're talking about exactly. here. <laughs> My father had, a, I thought, a wonderful saying. I'm sure other people have said it, that he was married 50, to my mother 54 years before he died. And when people would ask about the longevity of their marriage, he would say, well, after a while, the last nerve died. 
Uh, Thank you, ma'am, for the call. Thank you for calling. Glad to have heard from you. And we pause for a last round of commercials, then directly back to the phones. 591-7200. I must read you this email, though it takes us into um, uh, difficult terrain. After 25 years of marriage, my husband left to live a gay lifestyle. We successfully raised three children and had a good and what I thought to be a happy marriage. This situation has been difficult and confusing for me. My comment, I bet. Uh, I know it has also been difficult for our children. It is hard to understand that after many years of commitment, a person can walk away from a meaningful relationship. Of course, this is not just walking away from one meaningful relationship to another. It's walking away from a heterosexual relationship to a homosexual one. Uh, back to the text here. There is very little one can do to sustain a marriage when the other person is conflicted with gender identity and wants to explore that lifestyle. To me, that raises the very interesting question of uh, what conflicted over gender identity really means and how much of it is a reaction to what's also in the cultural air uh, and uh, the, uh, the glamorization uh, of homosexuality that virtual glamorization that occurs in its treatments in popular entertainments and also in the kind of political uh, uh, press that comes from what would have to be called the homosexual lobby. There was a lovely uh, essay I read recently, it might have been in the New York Times, from a woman whose husband had left her in this kind of situation uh, for another man or for men. And she said she went to see the movie Brokeback Mountain and expected it to be kind of a cathartic experience. And she was appalled that when the wife in the movie sees the two men, her husband, kissing another man, uh, everyone in the theater laughed. And she thought, oh, I must be in the wrong neighborhood. And so she Mm -hmm. went and saw the movie again another place. And again, everyone laughed as though it was funny. And she was, uh, she said she was just uh, shocked that a, a period that had been so incredibly painful for her was taken so lightly by people who had not had that experience. And I am sympathetic to uh, people who are attracted to the same sex and are in a marriage, especially a long marriage. I I think there are some real issues there. But I also think uh, that when you are married to someone, you're making a commitment to them. And uh, I'm particularly struck, there was a story recently in the New York Times about uh, women whose husbands want to experiment uh, with relationships with other men, and they uh, stay married to them. And one young woman said her husband uh, kind of came out to her and himself uh, about two weeks before their second child was born. And so after the second child was born, he was out each night uh, exploring his new sexual identity. I've been the mother myself of two young children, <laughs> one of them a newborn. And, and the thought that this man thought it was a good time to uh, go explore mm-hmm. his sexual identity uh, when there was a newborn in the home and that the story, the reporter treated this as just a very understandable thing to do, uh, blew my mind. But what you're saying raises the question, though we can't possibly process it and solve it here tonight, of the actual nature and source of sexual identity. Is it, in fact, reasonable in the, on the basis of the data we've got that a man can go for 25 years in a heterosexual marriage, uh, have children, and then discover some identity shift? Or a secret side of his nature which until then he had not honored? Well, that's uh, that's a tough one, Bill. <laughs> you solve that one right now, Alan. <laughs> um, I think this is true. Um, for better and worse, we now live in a time where where the light, sort of say, the normal life script, which would have guided this person even during mm-hmm. periods of strange attractions, that life script really isn't there very well anymore. Well said. And um, what would have 
helped someone through, uh, even under very difficult uh, emotional pressures, is just not there. In fact, the society is increasingly saying, well, if it feels like you want to try that, maybe you should try it. Uh, Fritz Perls gave us the, the life script with his great maxim, if it feels good, do it. Precisely. And I think that's the... Uh, that's becoming the popular life script, yeah. which opens up a potential for all kinds of tragedy. Yeah. Let's work in one or two more quick calls. We go uh, next to this one. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, hello. Um, thank you for taking my call. A uh, couple of, of comments, just um, an observation. I've been listening to the show, and it seems that predominantly um, the voices expressed are that divorce is this bad thing, it really damages children really severely, um, and almost to the point that, that I'm hearing that maybe we should not have divorce anymore, which concerns me. I grew up in such a dysfunctional family that I, I wished my parents divorced. It is so dysfunctional, I since changed my name, left the entire state, and have nothing to do with these people because they're so sick. Had there been divorce, it would have been wonderful. Um, did, they, did they never divorce? They never divorce. They're still married to each other because that's what you do. You get married, you stay together, no matter how... I mean, we're talking severe abuse. Mm -hmm. Not just one or two things. Across the board. Physical, sexual, um, just verbal, emotional all of it. We're talking very, very sick environment. Um, and they raised three children, all of which have since left home and have no contact with them. Um, so divorce would have been very, you know, I wish my parents divorced. Secondly, um, I, I was very concerned with the comment that um, the, it is step families that have a high incidence in abuse, um, being that the, the life I was raised within and having abuse issues to deal with, my research found that Christian homes was the most abusive home. A, a, you know, a good Christian home was where more abuse occurred. Your research. Let's uh, stop my, for a moment and describe to us the methodology of your research. Thirteen years working in a not-for-profit center working with women who were abused and victimized. Um, reading, you know, most of the scholars that are out there on... Uh, sexual abuse within the home, that the Bible is used to support the abuse and victimization of children because the uh, father no, is the head of the family. Let, let's get, uh, That's uh, a concern let's, let's pause for a moment, ma'am, and, ma and get a response from Alan Carlson, who, after all, uh, is the president of the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society. Do you know of such research yourself, huh? Well, I, I guess I've been looking at different research, but um, I will certainly grant that some terrible things have happened in the name of religion. Um, and uh, abusive situations, I can think of uh, the, the Jonestown's cult, cult, for example, involving a ritualized abuse of children and adults and so on. So yes, that can happen. Is that the norm? Is that what we see in general? No, it really isn't. Um, the, the literature on this is really quite compelling. Um, and I, again, I'm, I'm talking about, on average, looking at large communities. It doesn't tell me anything about a single case, but it does help me predict. Uh, the safest place uh, for children and for uh, uh, and for women is, in fact, in a, an intact marriage with their uh, with, with children growing up with their natural parents. That's um, 
there, I know of no reputable study that shows anything other than that. That doesn't mean abuse can't happen in, a, uh, in an attacked uh, home. It does. But it hap the odds of it happening are, are dramatically less. Um, uh, again, I, you, you can't, again, that doesn't predict uh, how one single home is going to behave necessarily. But uh, as we deal with this in public policy, you have to look at the broad, at the broad spectrum of things. With that, we'll consider that a fair exchange, and time being very short, go quickly to another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. I guess I'll just offer more of a, a perspective on some of the things that happened to me as a, as a child growing up. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was uh, very young, and it was in the 60s, as uh, you had previously discussed. And as I was growing up, and when I got into kindergarten and grade school, I had thought that mom and dad basically, you know, let lived different lives and were separated. I didn't know any better until I actually started to experience things like birthday parties and things like that and found out as I was growing older that, uh, you know, it, it felt like I had to make choices uh, and some of those choices were very difficult. Uh, at one point I was going back and forth and both had gotten remarried and I was very fortunate to be in two loving homes but they were separated by three hours distance so I wound up having to take a bus back and forth between the two of them every other weekend because of custody situations and as I got older and able to make my own choices and, and you know actually could drive it's like who do I spend Christmas with who do I spend Thanksgiving with and I almost felt kind of guilty about the situation and I find today that even in situations that I have to make tough choices that it's very difficult for me to do that one of the things, uh, people often think that divorce is an event and uh, that kids react like adults do. You know, it's hard around the time and then it gets better. What I find about divorce and even this kind of good divorce where the child stays in close contact with both parents is that this restructures childhood for the rest of their childhood and into the young adulthood. And children of good divorces actually have even more of these kinds of choices to make that you're talking about. Um, and the older they get, the more the choices become their choices rather than their parents. You know, when you're little, your parents tell you where to go. The older you get, it becomes your choice. So divorce gets more and more complicated the older you get, even if you were three or four when they split up. All right, thanks to the caller. Time is very short. My apologies to those who are still waiting online and those who've sent email that we haven't got around to reading. But I want to take the last few minutes to talk. Uh, we we uh, First, to reassert and reaffirm that uh, the book in hand by Elizabeth Marquardt, Between Two Worlds, The Inner Lives of Children of Divorce, is a very significant contribution, I think, to this whole area uh, of inquiry. And I'm sure that Alan Carlson agrees with me. And I think Alan Carlson would probably agree with me as well that the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society does some very important work and that its website ought to be consulted. Please say something about it. <laughs> Please come and visit us, www.profam.org. We'd be delighted to have you there and send you some sample literature. What, what download does, it. What does one find there, in fact? Uh, one finds uh, our uh, monograph series, The Family in America. We find a new research section that's been going on for about 20 years, over 2,000 research abstracts dealing with the kind of evidence we've been talking about tonight. Uh, you can search it with a, with a uh, keyword search. Very helpful mm -hmm. to uh, writers, researchers, politicians, and average folk. And one finds there as well, if you know where to look, a list of the officers and the staff, and even of the board of directors, uh, on which list, I'm happy to say, my name is to be found. We're delighted to have you, sir. And um, with that, we will begin to close down for the evening. Uh, once again, the book by Elizabeth Marquardt, Between Two Worlds, The Inner Lives of Children of Divorce, uh, is 
just recently published by Crown Books, available wherever they sell real books.